We'll be in Matthew 27 this morning, Matthew 27. Uh, a few weeks ago, went up to Jersey Mike's to pick us up some subs and saw a little stand outside that was a D.A.R.E. stand. Uh, they were apparently raising funds to keep the D.A.R.E. program going so that they could go and talk to schools about peer pressure. Uh, and as I was preparing the sermon, it reminded me of uh, back whenever I was in school and I would go to the D.A.R.E., uh, you know, hour-long lecture where we would hear about uh, the dangers of drugs and the dangers of, of sex and, and engaging in the wrong crowds and, and the susceptibility that we have to peer pressure. Uh, and I just started thinking about that, and, and I wonder what that class would look like today for kids, um, you know, with social media being what it is. I imagine it would be a little different than it, it was uh, back in our day. But uh, then I started thinking, what would that class look like for adults? Uh, you know, do we need a peer pressure class? Is that something that, that we face? Uh, is, is some peer pressure on a daily basis? Think about all the advertisements uh, that, that we have thrown at us that are trying to pressure us into being like other people who have these possessions and, and trying to push us into buying uh, whatever it is that we don't really need. Uh, we've got televisions, computers, we've got smartphones that are just constantly pumping us full of information about things that we should buy. Uh, and so there's that peer pressure, but they're not going to give us a class on that, right? They want us to buy that stuff. So uh, it's, it's fascinating, though. You think about how we might need a class on peer pressure because it's not just those advertisements, but it's our relationships as we continue into adulthood. We are continually being pressured and influenced by the people around us and in ways that we may not realize. Well, the text that we're studying this morning is about peer pressure, and it's about influence as we study and learn about uh, a trial of Jesus. Well, he's been tried. Why, why is there another trial? Well, as we come into chapter 27, verse 11, we notice that the trial session did not end with the late night trial, it did not end with the early morning trial with the Sanhedrin council, but there's yet another trial that Jesus has put before. And I'd like for us to study this together and notice what happens here. Verse 11, uh, beginning, it says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Pause right there for just a second. We see once again, Jesus is brought before a, a, a judge, a jury kind of a situation. Pilate is the governor. He's the one who's going to make the decision. And we see that uh, the Jews had to do this because they themselves cannot kill Jesus. They've determined that he deserves to die, but they have no way that they can, they can do capital punishment because uh, they're still under Roman rule. And so we, they bring Jesus before Pilate, and they start spewing out all these accusations against Jesus. And it's fascinating to Pilate. Notice it says he was greatly amazed. Jesus doesn't defend himself. 
He doesn't argue against a single charge. He asked him the question point blank, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so, which is what he said before to Judas, what he said before to the high priest. And now he says it to Pilate, saying, you know who I am. Pilate's well aware of Jesus and what Jesus has been doing. And he says, you have said so. But now he hears all these accusations. He says, you don't have a defense. And Jesus says nothing. Imagine, if you would, being in that room and hearing all of these accusations coming from the religious leaders against the man who has been a leader that has fought against the religious leaders. Hearing all those accusations that go against what that you already know about this man and then hearing the, the, Jesus say nothing in response. Can you imagine anyone ever doing that if they're completely innocent to just sit there and take it? Taking all those accusations against them. We talked a a couple weeks ago about Jesus being silent as they accuse him of all these things. And we we kind of noticed, that's not me. (laughs) I I would most certainly be speaking out. I would be accusing them of things, whether I knew they did them or not. I would be so mad and so angry. I'd be retaliating. And here again, Jesus is completely silent. We see him completely submissive to his father's will, wanting to do what God wants him to do, wanting to be the sacrifice for all of our sins. And so he takes it. He takes it all on himself. We go to verse 15. It says, uh, now at the feast, we fast forwarded. There's a feast, the feast of Passover that's going on. And this is what it says. Now at the feast of Passover... The governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting in the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to him, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Wow. This is a very bizarre twist in the story. If you're reading this for the first time, we see here in this text that Pilate knows exactly what's going on. He knows, he perceives that the religious leaders want to kill Jesus out of envy. It tells us in verse 18. And not only that, but for some reason, his wife has had a bad dream about about Jesus. And he he has a message from his wife saying, do not have anything to do with this man. Do not be, be guilty for judging this man, trying to remove him from the guilt of the judgment. And so we see Pilate using plan B, which is actually plan C, if you read the other gospel accounts. Actually, 
Plan B was, oh, he's Galilean. I'm going to send him up to Herod and let Herod deal with him. That doesn't work, but Matthew kind of skips over that. And this is plan C. Whenever Jesus comes back from Herod, he finds out, he, he, he remembers, ah, it's the Passover feast. There's a tradition on the Passover where we allow for one prisoner to go free, to be forgiven of, of whatever wrong that they've done and, and, and part of that feast. And so he brings Jesus up with the most notorious of criminals, thinking, ah, oh, here we go. Now the people can save their Christ and the, the Jewish leaders will be defeated and I didn't have to do anything. You see how that works. That's a, that's a great plan right there. And it removes him from the pressure that he feels from the Jewish leaders to condemn and kill Jesus. You see, these guys could make his life miserable if they wanted to. And he doesn't want to deal with that. So he's going to let the people be against the religious leaders. And then that will remove their influence. And then Pilate can set him free. But what we see is... Amazing. Some way, somehow, it tells us the religious leaders were able to persuade all of these people to free Barabbas, a notorious criminal, a man people do not like and people are happy are behind bars. And to keep Jesus in prison. But not only that. Pilate comes and says. What shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And it's as though that somehow provoked them to anger. That, that they would call this man who is arrested the Christ. And they say. Let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. This whole scene is mind blowing. Pilate, I'm sure, never saw this coming. And he asked that question, what evil has he done? And they just say, let him be crucified. At this point, we see that things start to get out of hand. Read with me verse 24. It says, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. See, Pilate failed to accomplish what he had hoped. And why is it that he fails? Well, he underestimated the power of influence that the religious leaders had over the people. He underestimated it. And, and even though he really just wanted Jesus to be set free, he couldn't set him free because the religious leaders had influence over the people. And so that religious leader influence over the people is ultimately what leads to his failure. But another thing leads to his failure. Pilate loves being governor and wants to excel and wants to be greater. But he wants that more than he wants to be just. At the root, the problem is 
he compromises justice. This is why he fails. He compromises justice. He refuses to do the thing that he was hired to do, that he is in the position to do, because he loves the idea of being successful more than he likes the idea of doing what is just. He thinks, oh, I can get around this. Look, I'll send him to Herod. Oh, I can get around this. Look, I'll, I'll offer him to the people. And all of that craftiness was no match for Satan. Satan had his number. Satan defeated Pilate. Ultimately, that's what led to his failure. I love how at the end of this, he washes his hands. As though that does anything. <laughs> as though his hands are dirty and he, you know, because he's done this and just simply washing the outside of his hands has made him guilt free. And his blood, the blood of Jesus is not on him. Oh yes, it's on him because he is the one who is responsible for justice. He is the, the one person who should have set Jesus free and knew it and didn't do it because he was afraid. He was afraid of the repercussions of doing the right thing. So what do we learn from this story? Hopefully we see in this that influence forces us to compromise what we know is right. That's not a profound idea. That's simple, right? Influence forces us to compromise what's right. You see in this, Pilate is stuck between what is right and what is convenient for him. He knows the right thing to do, but he knows that if he does it, that's going to be suffering, and he knows if he just simply gives them what they want, then his life will be made much easier. We can say... Peer pressure led him to crucify Jesus. He didn't even want to do it, but he did it. And as we look at the crowd, I think the big point there is these men and women are easily influenced and fooled by appearances. Well, here's Jesus before them, and, and he is a prisoner. Uh, he's a criminal. And, and they had seen him as the Christ, the Messiah, just 24 hours earlier. They thought he was amazing. He answered every argument that the religious leaders had. And here he is appearing to be a criminal. The religious leaders say that he's a criminal. And they follow the blind into the pit. Appearances are very deceiving. And they have a huge impact on the influence that people have over us. This is what the advertising companies are all about, right? They want to show us everything will be better in your life if you just buy our product, you know? That's it. It's all good. Everything's great. Just buy this and you'll have the happy life you always wanted. And this is the way the religious leaders are. Just do whatever we tell you to do and life will go back to the life that you love. Everything will be right again. So how do we apply this to ourselves? Have you ever been affected by peer pressure? Has, has the, the thoughts of someone else prevented you from doing the thing you knew you should have done? 
I don't think anybody can honestly raise their hand and say, I, I've, I've never been affected. This is so easy for us to compromise what we know is right in order to do what's most convenient. You see, in our minds, we work it out to where if, if we'll just sacrifice what's right here, we won't feel any pain, and then later on, that won't matter that we sacrifice what's right. And we just need to sacrifice it now because if we don't, we're going to feel the pain. And it's a very easy answer to the question, what do we need to do? As we look at the, the crowds, we should wonder, have we ever succumbed to religious peer pressure? And I'm not talking about, you know, people at church telling you you should do what you should do. Um, and, and if you think about it, what we do at the end of every sermon is not peer pressure. We're not standing up here, everybody looking at the one person who is not submitted or is sinning and, and expecting them to come up. Like, we just open an, an invitation to people. We're, there's no peer pressure really here. But if you think about it, there is religious peer pressure from everybody around us. And that's the reason why so many people still reject Jesus. It could be the reason why someone here this morning does not accept Jesus, is not willing to submit their lives to Jesus, is not willing to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. There's this acceptance that, that they have with friends or with family or with people that, that know them. That if they were to accept Jesus, then that would mean that they're different now. And those relationships are affected and, and it's not going to be really convenient for them to accept Jesus. Can you imagine being in that crowd and hearing people say, crucify him? And you were the one who thought, but, but why? <laughs> are you going to say, don't crucify him and be crucified with him? You see that, that feeling, that, that desire to be accepted is forcing many in the crowds to reject Jesus and to go along with what everybody else is doing, even though they're extremely wrong in what they're doing. And the blood of Jesus is on them. They are guilty of the murder of Jesus. We need to understand that whenever we're doing that, whenever we're giving in to the religious peer pressure or the peer pressure of people around us, we're trying to avoid suffering, but it's only temporary. We avoid suffering for a very small amount of time because that suffering will catch up with us. And here's why. Proverbs 13, verse 20, I hope we can commit this to our memory Whoever walks with the wise will become wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. If we want to join ourselves to our friends and our family that reject Jesus, then we will join ourselves to them when this life is over. And we will go where they go and we will have what they have. But if we know in our hearts that the wise choice is to accept and to follow Jesus, we better join ourselves to those who are doing that in order to receive the reward that they will receive. 
We better overcome the influence of the people who are around us, who are pushing us in the wrong direction. We better change course and deal with the temporary suffering that will be experienced in order to avoid the permanent suffering that is to come. You know, I think about influence a lot. I've actually thought about it a whole lot whenever I first became a Christian and I was just so surrounded by rough people. Um, you know, I remember working at Stanley Steamer and being around people that um, totally different backgrounds than me, opened my eyes to so much, uh, just that experience. Some of them were great guys and some of them were just really, really strange. <laughs> and I remember thinking, you know, how, how do you get away from this? You know, how do you stop getting pulled into the sins that, that they're doing? How do you overcome those things? How do you stop being influenced by them? And I thought maybe the solution is to just get away from everybody. I'll just separate myself. I'll just make this little boundary and I'll only associate with people who I know are good and right and wise. And, and that way I'm avoiding all foolish people. That sounds like a pretty logical solution. Except the problem is you can't really do that. You know, Pilate really couldn't do that. That's his job. <laughs> you do your job well, you rise, and then you have to deal with these foolish people. There's no escaping it. You're going to, at some point, have to learn to deal with the foolish people that are around you and not get sucked into their foolishness. But also, remember, Jesus didn't want to do that. Jesus didn't want to avoid foolish people. He hung out with the foolish people, the tax collectors, the sinners. He spent time with them, and he influenced them. Now, that's the, that's the way we want to go. That's where we want to be. But how do we do that? Right? How do we become the influencer instead of receiving influence from these foolish people around us? Another proverb I think is fascinating is uh, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 3. It says, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. The solution to the problem of influence is integrity. Whenever we have that opportunity where we could make a little compromise. And if we just make that little compromise, we avoid suffering for a little bit, and then we think we'll just we'll get past that, we'll be free and clear of that in just a little bit of time. We avoided some suffering right now. Life is good. We need to understand that that's, that's really destroying our integrity. That's fighting against what we know is right, fighting against the conscience that tells us this is wrong, stop doing that, or this is right, do that. We're destroying it. We're searing it. We're causing it to go numb so it doesn't feel anything. And so it has a greater impact than what we think. And instead of allowing that, to, to allowing ourselves to be deceived, to think that that little compromise of integrity is going to be okay, we'll get past it. We have to own it. We have to let our integrity guide us. 
We have to make the hard decision to do the right thing when everybody else around us doesn't understand. And instead of seeing that as a great suffering and a great hardship, we have to think, here's an opportunity to be like my Lord, who never compromised his integrity. Not once. He let his integrity guide him. So he was upright. And he's the perfect example for us all to follow and to let our integrity guide us. To stop compromising our integrity for the thoughts of other people. For the, the, the approval of other people. For other people to like us more. Because we know that's not really worth anything, is it? It's empty. It's useless. These people who approve of us one day will disapprove of us the next day for something totally out of our control, out of our hands. It's ridiculous for us to even try. And yet we do. But with the Lord, His approval is everything. And our desire should be to glorify Him. And that's, that's really the solution to the problem of influence. The solution is a change of heart. We have to have a heart that desires to glorify Christ more than we desire to avoid suffering, to avoid shame, to avoid disapproval. So I don't really know what an adult peer pressure class would look like. But I think what we're reading here in this text is an example of what not to do. Don't let people's feelings and emotions, don't let your own drive for success, don't let your own drive for prosperity be the driving factor in your life. Let your integrity be the driving factor in your life. Because you love God more than you love the world. Because you're seeking a heavenly home more than you are a comfortable and convenient earthly home. If you're like me, you've made lots of mistakes in this area. You've probably surrounded yourself with foolish people who have drugged you down and through the mud and caused you to compromise your integrity so many times you've lost count. But Jesus allows for that conscience that's been seared to be renewed. If, we'll, if we will once again turn our hearts back to God and submit to Him, He can make us clean and holy and pure and righteous and sanctified, and we can be with Him forever. And if there's anything that we can do to help you, will you please come as we stand and as we sing?